0: Why it was you, oh, sorry. changed. No, go ahead. No, go it ahead. was you tell changed me. when my great grandfather or great-great grandfather came over. He was from Aust- the city, Austria in Poland. And then when he came over it was Stypirich but they've changed to Stipir Stipirk.
1: Well, ladies and gentlemen, what better way for us to introduce <laughs> our next guest in the pod than by her explaining her last name? Hello, it's Toby Miller here. Welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast, and I have just had the great good fortune to meet Jennifer Styperk, and I was asking her about her last name, which is spelled S-T-Y-P-E-R-K, because I wasn't familiar with it, and she was saying it's only people from her immediate family, or a greater family, that in she knows in, in the U.S., because in a sense it was one of those anglicized names, right, and came from what may not have been that common a name anyway.
0: Probably not because no. we don't hear any others. Back in the old country. So my brother better have uh, children. <laughs> the pressure is on him. The
1: pressure is on. <laughs> Absolutely.
0: Uh, and we're here
1: at M on Main Street in Santa Monica. We're having—is this a late breakfast or an early lunch? on a Tuesday. What do you think we should call this?
0: I'm going with the original invitation of brunch.
1: Okay, it's a brunch. Very good. I've got a feeling that may not have been all that original on my part, but it was the original invitation. And the reason why I very much wanted to meet Jennifer and talk to her is to chat about her poetry and her business. But before I do that, and I don't know whether this will actually help to answer that or not, I'd like to ask you what I always ask guests, which is Please tell us what you're up to here and now, right now, what's going on.
0: I can't help but notice the large sign, art piece that just says simply yes behind you yeah. in, in bright orange and I think in my mo- my life currently I'm really trying to focus on being in the present moment so I greatly appreciate your question and, and certainly that past-present moment this morning, I was writing a poem for a client. Valentine's Day is coming up, so we have a lot of commissioned poems of people expressing themselves, their appreciation and their love to their loved ones. So Valentine's Day is a busy time for us at Poetry Salon, but I am also working on my own book of books of poetry as well.
1: And my memory is that part of the seduction story, which is not relevant to you and me, of course, but the seduction story of John Lennon Yoko Ono is of his going to an art show of hers, and there being a box at the top of a a ladder, and he's walking up the ladder, climbing up the ladder, opening the box, and it's saying yes inside, and this meaning a great deal to him because he was looking for positivity in his life. I guess people thought that way in the late 60s in their quiet or, in his case, loud desperation. In any event, so that's great. You're, what you, your answer gives us is, I guess, a sense of the urgency of the moment. Today, folks, is January the 31st, so it is, in fact, two weeks until the V word. Uh, and you've just mentioned Poetry Salon, which is the business that you run or are involved with.
0: Yes, founder and, and owner
1: founder and owner.
0: Can you tell us a bit about that,
1: Jennifer? And why Valentine's Day is big for Poetry Salon?
0: I think it's big for Poetry Salon not only because we're helping people to express their love or honor of other people, but but also the momentum in which we've we've been gathering over the past year, year and a half since really the, the true founding. Uh, Poetry Salon, to me, is about translating people's lives into poetic language. So it's about finding the metaphors, imagery, landscape, music within your person that someone in your life wants to honor. So it's taking the poetic skills that we as poets have and generously, in a way, if you will, donating them to other people's lives. It's selfless in that the content comes completely from someone in your life so if you want to honor your mom for mother's day we would write we would interview you and then write the poem based on that but for me the real key is translation translating those memories and stories into a poem so this morning's endeavor i'm working on a poem for a boyfriend to his girlfriend and i love the fact that in their one-on-one basketball tournament, she's currently the series leader. <laughs> huh. So, you know, it's it's finding those moments in your intimate life and how they can transcend and say so much more about your relationship. So, and he certainly wants to honor her and say that he loves her. So, I'm just thinking about Shakespeare and how one of his sonnets, How Do I Count the Ways? How Do I Love Thee? How Do I Count the Ways? I really like that he counts the ways by her being this, the series leader in their basketball. So a little haiku
1: would be, I love losing to you (laughs) one-on-one.
0: That's fantastic. And what would I get for that? (laughs)
1: The going rage.
0: Our haikus (laughs) tend to be about $95. They work really well with thank yous, holiday greetings, you know, kind of be a little more original in your Christmas card, for example. We're writing a thank you right now, actually. Okay, wonderful.
1: And... What are some of the ingredients that go into a good Valentine's Day poem?
0: One of my first poetry teachers, James Brassfield, very engaging, highly intellectual, polished and talented poet. He, in my class, would always read us a poem. And even if there was a crow that started to take flight in the tree, he would stop because he wanted the music of the poem to be pure. So for him, really silence and really appreciating the music that comes from the words and and really our body because poetry is meant to be orally recited to one another. And he had us write love poems without using the word love, and any cliche that you can think of. So forget roses, forget love, forget red, get rid of all of those things. And for me, for the commissioned poem, it is truly finding the stories or moments, like being a series leader, like uh, even walking on a beach, but what is unique to that couple walking on the beach. Well, this particular couple The boyfriend recognizes his girlfriend's beauty and really appreciates that she puts nothing false on. She doesn't wear makeup. He likes that truth. So finding those elements and sort of her being a winner, her never putting on any sort of false front, trying to go a little bit deeper in the person's life. So, in short, the answer to your question is no clichés. <laughs> That's an interesting
1: starting point. It reminds one of George Orwell's Politics of the English Language, Five Rules or So for Writing, You know, and things like don't repeat figures of speech that you've heard before, cut out any word you can cut out, and so on. He was writing about prose, but certainly that, that no clichés is a good one, I think. Uh, now, in terms of the the process, so... I write to you online or I call you up at Poetry Salon and I say...
0: uh Do we have the website? It's Poetry Salon.
1: Yes, PoetrySalon.com. And here is a wonderful little card, Timeless Joy. Sounds good.
0: Endless. It's orgasm. the goal, it's the goal. I say that we make people cry. Oh, it's so sweet.
1: <laughs> How can you stop the world from turning for one special moment? How can you magnify infinity? How can you make a memory last longer than forever? How can you make your loved one cry tears of joy? So this is bespoke poetry, custom-crafted work of art based on stories you provide. So personalised interview by phone or email. All right, so I could be writing to you from West Africa or from the west side of L.A., and then maybe I talk on the phone to you or email you. What sorts of things do you ask me? About my, Is it about me? Is it about my love? Is it about both of us? What are you after? Without wishing to give away trade secrets, just something that you're happy to share.
0: Sure, yeah. absolutely. And, and we're always looking toward the psychological research in terms of some interesting questions to ask someone. One of my favorites is what era... Do you feel you should have been born in? And what era do you feel your muse should have been born in? Um, And that sometimes is asked and sometimes not asked. We like to start with, okay, what are your three, what are the three traits you admire and appreciate most in your muse? And then we'll move more into where do you, When you picture your muse, where are they, what do you see, what's around them, what do you hear, because it's really prompting those sensory details from people that we don't think to articulate on a daily basis. So it could be food, or
1: wine, or coffee, or perfume, all sorts of things. We love
0: those details. That's usually in the follow-up interviews, you know, are you drinking wine, is it red or white, you know, all of that kind of stuff, really asking those writerly questions. Yeah, fantastic. And
1: what yeah. sorts of people, by and large, are coming to you? Is there a difference in gender or race or
0: age or... So far, that you are I'm of? happy to say that we've had a very wide range of clients, and clients who surprise me. My My favourite client came to us, ordered a poem, and only then did we find out she was ordering the poem for herself. And it meant so much to me because she ordered the poem, having lost her first love... Her first love passed away, and now she was overcoming the heartbreak of breaking up with her second love. So this poem, she wanted to hang on her wall and to really help her, which to me she, thank you so much. This looks delicious. I think we made the right choice great. here with our commuter. Yeah, we did. Classic. <laughs> Thank Cheers. you. Could I get a cup of tea, perhaps? Yeah. Uh, just, breakfast, no English breakfast, English English breakfast would be okay. great. Do you want anything hot at all? I'm great. Thank right. you. Cheers. I already had my morning tea. Very good. PG Tips, actually. PG my Tips. My favorite tea ever since living in London. I.
1: You've heard I, the expression builder's tea during a time in Britain, I assume. Uh,
0: no, I don't think so. So builder's
1: tea is when you're saying you it. Oh.
0: Steep it. You
1: steep it very. Really long. strong and really sweet and really white, or really black. That's I mean, it's me. I like be, builders
0: tea. Well, builders I'm out tea on is, the construction site all is, day. This
1: is, <laughs> this is absolutely construction <laughs> site. Serious construction worker talk. This is not Nancy boy. English breakfast, Irish breakfast, <laughs> Earl Grey, <laughs> orange pico, no, none of that crap, thank you very much. Builder's tea. I think that's what Builders you're tea. into, I think that's
0: your tea. That is absolutely my tea and I yes. really cherish, I have a thermos of my father's and his name Ron is on it and that's where he took his coffee every day because we have a long line of being from Pittsburgh, we have the steel mill workers yes. and then my father was the last, sort of the last line of that sort of industry because he was a nuclear operator, or... Still is.
1: So oh interesting. Let's let's talk about the family then for a second before we get sure. back to the story of the lady who had something written for herself. So Dad was a construction line worker but in a new era, as it were. Is that, Industry.
0: Is that like right. That that sort sector? of industrial boom. So instead of, you know, my great grandfather working in the steel mills and being burnt by the molten ore that overflows Uh, then my father followed in that line of work but then the newer boom in in sort of Pittsburgh at the time was nuclear power so it's Duquesne light was the original company it's owned by someone else now but it was also the the site of the first commercial nuclear reactor so the Guard the National Guard the the protected, my dad's work. My dad always joked there was a underground sort of refuge. If there was ever a bomb or a nuclear attack, you could go there. But he said by the time you got through the guards, you, you would you would have met your demise because it was just so hard to, every day getting to work, he had to go Agreed. through a series of guards.
1: Now, the food's just arrived, as you may have gathered. I want to make sure Jennifer doesn't have to eat hers cold. So Thank I'm going to you. ask a slightly more elaborate question now.
0: So I get to take a bite. You You are kind. Thank you.
1: (laughs) It's a fascinating transformation to think of a family that's part of the industrial heartland. I should say, Jennifer, that people from fifty different countries listen to this podcast every week. So not everybody will have English as a first language, and not everybody will be familiar with the geography of the United States. So Pittsburgh, as many will know, but some may not, is part of the Midwest of the. United States. It's in the very big state of Pennsylvania, but it's over the other side of the state, the western side of the state from Philadelphia, the other city a lot of people will have heard of. And it's very much got a tradition of a blue collar town at the same time as it has a great arts tradition. So many will have uh, heard of Gene Kelly, the great dancer and film actor, for example, a native of Pittsburgh. Um, but, you know, and in fact, there's still, I think, a Gene Kelly contest in high schools for best musical but it's got a great art scene as well and it's one of those big midwestern cities that has sought to regenerate itself with the deindustrialization that's occurred in the united states over the last 4 decades as the heartland jobs particularly in pennsylvania western pennsylvania in areas like mining but also steelworks and so on have been lost in many cases. A lot of both mining and manufacturing occupations have almost disappeared, certainly been transformed. And now these areas are much more of a mixed economy, though they still suffer from the slings and arrows of outrageous disemployment that comes with the end of good jobs for the working class and the prospect of middle-class transformation. Better keep chewing, because I'm about to come to my question. So, if you think of Pittsburgh as a classic steel town, but also as an intellectual town, how did those things come together for you as an emerging poet, as I guess you were growing up?
0: I My background is much more steeped in the working class side of things. Uh, you work for an hourly pay, is, is the mentality, don't... Don't come and do something unless you're getting that sort of five, ten dollars. As opposed to what I look at it as more of an upper class or business owning or even aristocracy, where putting time into cultural arts, whether it's having a conversation, donating some time, you know, having that sort of upfront capital to be able to say, you know what, my breakfast is covered. So I can come and have this conversation, although you are covering my breakfast, so you...
1: (laughs) So it's your trying to slide in the avocado with the bacon.
0: Yes. (laughs) What if this is my only meal? (laughs) Uh, So from my upbringing, there was much more of a focus on hardworking and... Yet, as you mentioned, I was very fortunate to be from Pittsburgh. The Carnegie, the Frick, the old-time steel money that really founded Pittsburgh as a city, put us on the map, leaves us with really interesting museums. The Carnegie Museum, it's fantastic collection, our Natural History Museum, all the way up to Contemporary artists such as Andy Warhol who's also originally a Warhola from Pittsburgh, Carnegie, which is where my grandfather is from and Andy is really someone who I, I look to they always say that poetry is about 50 years behind painting and to me what Andy Warhol was doing in, in terms of embracing the capitalist economy around him taking the, the classic, the Campbell soup cans, and putting that onto a print and hanging it onto a wall and unabashedly saying, this, this is part of our lives. Why can't this be high art? You know, what's the difference between low and high art? In the same way, I see commissioned poetry embracing the system that we're in as well. Although I also see that the personal connection at heart is the distinction between what Warhol was doing and what I'm doing.
1: Well, I think it's also right to say that blue-collar poetry, if we can call it that, has been around for an awfully long time. It's never gone away. It's been transformed. And poetry, as taught often in schools, is quite different from the popular poetry that working people have always embraced and been part of. And obviously one includes in that everything from folk songs to rap. These and thank poetry. you for saying oh, that. And okay. al-
0: and also poetry having preceded the written language. Thank. You. It being what is it about poetry, primally, over the span of human history, that has that has stayed around? What is it about poetry that really touches people? And then that sound and image, that combination of everything, as well as to me, poetry makes visible the invisible through the senses.
1: I mean, poetry being read to people who were rolling cigars in Cuba or Tampa in the 19th century as they were in the factories. Workers' playtime being part of factory enjoyment and participation in Britain in the war. However, I want to get back to the business in a moment, but I'm very drawn to this image of the lady who's lost the two loves and is getting a poem written for herself. So can we return to that for yeah. a moment?
0: Absolutely. Let, let me just say first, in thinking about working yeah. class poetry, Mark Nowak is a documentary style uh, poet and his book, The Coal Miner's Elementary, is a very moving book of poetry that actually he has read at as many union meetings as he has read at poetry readings.
1: Oh, fantastic.
0: Which fantastic. I really sure. love. So that's Mark Nowak. Mark no- Nowak. N-O-W-A-K, N-O-W-A-K. yes. Fantastic. And so, yes. So a client came to us, and she wanted this poem to really help her get through and be able to look every day and feel hope. So she really didn't even know what she wanted the poem to be about. Was it about her? Was it about life? Was it about love? Luckily, we have a very large network of published, professional, award-winning poets. And part of what I add is the magic of the matching, the e-harmony, if you will, of poet to client. (laughs) And I knew exactly what poet would be inspired by this brave woman's recognition of reaching out and saying, hey I I need help and I'm coming to you because I want to hang this poem on my wall and so a great artist and poet Sarah Walco who's based in New York City wrote a poem for her and as I thought she became so involved in the creation of this poem that she felt very compelled to also add a piece of artwork along with the poem for the woman to hang. So (laughs) when I asked you
1: uh, a question that led to our talking about her instance, her poem, I was asking you about the kind of person that you do business with, the clients or customers or muses, I think you call them, I guess it's their muse that the thing's being written for. In this case, the muse and the client are one and the same. Who are these folks in terms of age, gender, etc., etc.? Do you have a profile, or is it all over the shop?
0: It is mainly all over the shop right now. Mm. And so that woman would fall in the 20 to 30 female category. I have three... uh, a group of three women from different places where they came to Poetry Salon in the United States, but they are, I would say, in the 50 to 65 female age bracket, um, all married with children, and so I've had the great fortune of honoring one of their colleagues for a retirement dinner Mm -hmm. with a poem and then writing a thank you after a misfortune had befallen the family and they had had an outpouring of friends and gifts so that they want to extend a, a thank you note with a small little thank you poem announcing their children's graduations, a husband's birthday, a son's 21st birthday. Then jumping to that middle female age bracket of 30 to 40 We've had several women order poems for their children and we had the privilege of writing a poem for a four-year-old So the mom hopes that every year they will read this poem to their to their child as the child grows and we we have one of our poets is also a children's author and she will at times Because she's just so great and you just want to keep talking to her, we'll have return clients who, okay, we wrote the poem at four, then maybe at five or six, and then maybe at seven or eight, so then by the time the child's 18, you have a collection of these little phrases and nuances and your personality captured in a way that a photograph can't fully do or just a note in a journal can't fully do. So
1: this becomes part of the portfolio in applying to college if you want to get a scholarship to Yale you'd better have 13 or 14 years of poetry written about you by Poetry Salon.
0: What better way to start off your (laughs) college essay, exactly?
1: Your academic career (laughs) begins here and now, the generosity (laughs) of a parent or other benefactor. (laughs) Now, that is really interesting. So a lot of these things are commemorating milestones. Yes. Is that fair to say?
0: That is very fair to say. And I will say, another sect, we do have I I would say the males are more in the 20 to 45 range right now.
1: Yes, thank you very much.
0: So males 20 to 45, usually for a spouse or a girlfriend, so maybe the males' use of our service so far is a little more narrowed in to an intimate partner. Although, sometimes we we have poets that Our native speakers in French, native speakers in Spanish, native speakers of Mandarin. So we offer several languages as well. So we have these great stories of the American doctor studying in Irvine while his partner is living in her home country of Nicaragua or a uh, man who's based in Los Angeles and his girlfriend is in her their hometown in Turkey, but now she's moving to London. So so there's some international love stories that, that we get as well.
1: ILS's the long distance lament.
0: <laughs>
1: Very important indeed. And in terms of these things, I'm interested also in same sex couples. Do you have you see same sex families and whatnot? Do you have much queer uh,
0: trade so far? Our most recent uh, married couple, two women ordered the poem for their mother, mother-in-law, mother. They would recently been married and they bought the poem as a Mother's Day gift. Uh, though, I know ma- many of our poets would love to write more poems uh, of same-sex same, same sex love right, and marriage. To be heterosexual so families. far. Yeah. So far. Which yeah. may speak to An area I should think about a little more. Although we did just have a poem accepted into a a charity event that celebrates Gay Pride in Los Angeles. I can't think of the exact name right now. We're also we've also been accepted to the John John Varvados Ninth Annual Benefit for the Stewart House, which is the children's division, it's a home for children that have been sexually abused or sexually molested through the rape crisis treatment center of UCLA Santa Monica. Very University powerful. Of
1: California, Los Angeles There's a big hospital.
0: Very powerful institution. The children, it's a truly a home. The children are completely given back power. That They're said, okay, look, you and I are gonna be talking here. Here, we're going to take you behind the glass window where people are going to be watching you. Is that okay with you? Are you okay to have this conversation and play with me while someone is, you know, we'll let you know when someone's there, when someone's not there. So all about giving back power.
1: And what will your function be at poetry salon uh, in working with these folks at that house?
0: Currently, we are donating a poem to be auctioned off at their large benefit auction to to donate funds for a cause that I really obviously believe in, but for a lot of reasons feel it to be so important. I mean, certainly one of the basis crimes against humanity. I'm a practicing Catholic and we know that the, the church has not been immune to such tragic crime. So it's important to me to be saying, we are recognizing these acts against humanity, and we want to do something to make a difference. Yes,
1: that's, that's wonderful. So, just giving you a chance to get onto to the second part of your sandwich, I wanted to ask about some of the ethical issues that come up here. Do you mind if I say to my beloved, I've written this poem for you, darling, mm. when I've actually bought it from... You guys, when it's been commissioned, how does does that come up, or is that not an issue?
0: It's really your choice. Some people like at the bottom of the poem to say "Sonnet for Tammy, commissioned by Toby." Nice, for example. Yeah. Uh, Other people, I don't. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm sure that the people who say they've written it haven't told me that they say that they've <laughs> written it. <laughs> um, I know, I but just- that's absolutely fine. Whereas other people want to know a lot about their poet. They want the poet's biography. They w- they want to know who's writing the poem. So right now it's, it's a personal choice. And it's absolutely fine, whatever choice that may be. It's all about you reading your poem and having that moment That you share together that's powerful, but then also having that moment to return to because it's written on the page. So perhaps every Valentine's Day, every Mother's Day.
1: And who owns the intellectual property? I mean, if I'm a poet working for the Salon and I write a poem and I realize it's terrific and I want to publish it, can I do so?
0: Absolutely. Currently, we technically own the rights. So there's two two issues, right? One, the client issue. So if the client wants to own the rights, then there's just an, an extra cost and you can own the rights and you can go off and publish it and do what do what you want. And then the second issue is the poets owning owning the rights. And as it is right now, we maintain the rights for 26 years and then it reverts to the state of the poet. As we grow, I know my our lawyer is going to argue with me on that. <laughs> However, at any point my what i've established with the poets is yes please publish this poem the, the idea is that we are creating works of fine art so i want these poems to be published in poetry magazine so when the marxist leaning academic poetry community comes to battle with whether a poem can be written outside of an ivory tower or whether a commissioned work can be a fine art then i then I want to point and say, yes, actually, you've published this poem <laughs> because it's, a, it's about the discipline. It's why should it matter where the material comes from and s- certainly there's some really interesting poems that come out of the 17th century pastoral poetry of, say, Spencer and, and others. Sure,
1: sure. Yes, and uh, somewhere there's always some dirt in the money that sustains the creation of culture as it were. there are no clean hands in these things, least of all in universities. In any
0: event... No. Speaking of clean hands, I do want to say it's, confidentiality is of number one import to us. Yes. And so the poets are held under strict confidentiality contracts, as well as myself. And so I never actually use any poem without the client's permission. Because yes. some people love their poem to be shared, and other people want it to be very special and intimate. And we have so many excellent poems, there's, there's no loss of poetry, so we just respect what the client wishes, first and foremost.
1: Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that that is the right thing to do.
0: Now, I'd like to move on to
1: something that then will connect us back, I think, to your own poetry, as it were, or at least the poetry that you write in different contexts as well as this one. By asking you about the dilemma of sustaining oneself as a poet in the United States, this seems to me to have been a very inventive, innovative way of dealing with the question of how you feed your appetites as a poet. Instead of saying, I'll wait tables and be an actress During the day, what you're saying is, I'll write poetry, and some of it will be on commission, and some of it won't, and I'll participate in the economy as a poet. Is that right?
0: Absolutely, and thank you for recognizing that, because for several, well, if I may back up, about 10 years, it took me a long time to admit that I was a poet, because I was type A, had it in my head that there were certain... Uh, salary marks that I wanted to meet not only for myself but thinking of my family now granted my father would never accept anything from me but it was just in my own head I wanted to have enough to give but in recognizing that poetry is a gift as well I wanted to figure out how to be able to give so I came, I did come to this idea after years of finally saying yes. Hi, I'm a poet. It's nice to meet you. Cocktail party, my little black dress. Oh, ha, ha, ha. What do you really do? Was the obligatory joke. How do you make money? Well, in in America, I don't. If you notice this, we often when we say hi, how are you, who are you, what we're saying is hi. How do you make money? <laughs> so when you answer the hi, what do you do? And your what do you do to make money doesn't seem to read as something that could make money. You immediately get the direct question of, but how, really, how are you making money? What else are you doing, as you suggest? Are you waiting tables? Are you teaching? Now, certainly the traditional path over the past 50 years in America has been for poets to teach in colleges, which is fantastic and and a rich community. But should that be the only place in which poetry is evaluated and appreciated? Because where then, as you mentioned earlier, are the working class folk? Where is the the working man's poet within that? And so to me, the constraint of writing a commissioned piece really disciplines my craft in terms of thinking about audience and really having to own up to an audience where you want to truly communicate meaningfully their own life. Uh, So yes, I, I am working hard to be able to say that there are poets in the world making a living as a poet and I'm happy to say that at this point at least writing a poem can help a poet pay a grocery bill, go out to dinner, pay their cell phone bill, but that's something If you're walking around feeling different in the world, as many of us do, but poets particularly sort of feel or see differently, and it can be painful, it's nice to be rewarded.
1: Oh, Absolutely, and I think the sense is that lots of art in the United States is not sustained through public subsidy in ways that give people some level of security but by charity, or accident, or inheritance, or sales. And obviously in the world of art, there are very large amounts of money that can be made for artists in the big time market. In the same way that in the world of poetry, if you're writing something that is part of a very popular song, or is used as a song or as quoted as poetry in a film, you can make a very large amount of money with some very nice residuals that keep rolling in. But that is not the form of life normally for the vast majority of artists and poets, novelists too. And this, it seems to me, is a major dilemma we have here. So many people have to work discounted labour rates, as artists used as a very broad term to include yourself, rather than getting the recognition that they should get from society. But you're intervening in that and cutting across it in certain ways through a market-based form of participation that itself goes back a very long way from before. We had nation-states that were interested in supporting culture, so that draws me back to ask you if I could, I want you to have another bite. I'm getting worried about that egg. It was, wasn't that hot when it arrived. Mine wasn't hot. Was yours? It? it was, and it's still delicious cold. Okay, but I don't think it would have lost that much heat in the convenient <laughs> moments. I got into it as quickly as possible, as I always do on these occasions, to ensure that I, of course, am enjoying the food. I didn't think it had come out of the microwave all that recently, so to speak. In any event, moving on. I wonder if we could connect this back to your emergence as a poet. Uh, you mentioned tertiary institutions, universities as places where poetry is taught, and you are in that sense a qualified poet, as it were, aren't you? I mean, you learnt the art and craft professionally. Could you perhaps uh, tell us a little bit, reflect a bit on, on that experience? Because for many, many people I've discovered, despite the proliferation of creative writing programmes, the idea of learning creativity is quite mysterious in itself. You know, either you should just emerge from your parents' upbringing, a poet or an artist, or not, as opposed to no one expecting you to emerge as an attorney or a speechwriter. The
0: higher level education, uh, MFAs, MAs in creative it's writing.
1: Masters in fine arts, which is the uh, conventional kind of, in a way, professional qualification in the United States in areas like writing, acting, filmmaking.
0: It is the terminal degree, so the ultimate degree that you can achieve in that field, though in all those artistic fields, it, it is still your publication credentials. So where where have you published? Where have you been published? That's when you're really allowed to say I'm a poet. And I, I always say that I really went to schools in order to be paid to write. So I always made sure that I had a scholarship and I always made sure that I could sustain myself with that scholarship and write full time. So it was the permissible thing to say at holiday parties to family. Oh, well, what are you doing? That question again. How are you making money? Well, I'm getting paid to write right now, and that's when it's permissible when you're at school. <laughs> but in terms of the programs themselves, a writer going into that program and myself, I would say the best that you can get out of that is number 1 the dis- the discipline. The 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 daily discipline of how are you meeting deadlines, how are you recreating what you thought you should be writing into something else, 2 you're hearing a group of other artists responding to your work. So you're starting to get a sense, how does this line, how is it reading? I thought my poem was saying this, other people think it's saying this. So just this contact with an immediate audience that's really making you own up to the fact that, okay, it's not always about being in a closed door, in my room, because I must write. I just know that I must write. That's what's sort of led me to accept that I'm a poet. I feel miserable if in my life I'm not writing. So there are times, if I'm teaching, where the schedule can get just so draining that by February it's really hard to, to write once a week, let alone every day. So for me, it's, it's really the, di- the discipline and hearing other voices. But what also comes out of it is you're exposed to literature, writers, voices, published works of the written word that you would not have read yourself. And then you, what you really are exposed to is certainly what you can do on your own, and that is picking up books reading what other people are saying about the book, saying something yourself about those books, possibly picking a favorite poem and trying to recreate it and realizing in that act of translating this poem, you're creating a completely new poem in and of itself. And one of my published poems actually was, in fact, inspired by a Harriet Mullen poem. And... It's not in her book *Muse and Drudge*. It's in a newer book of Harriet Mullins. But that's my poem is called *The Glossies*. So it's the glossies. The glossies. It's it's looking at rhetoric in in our personal landscape, and that was published in *Open City*, a literary magazine that's had some great precedents that came out of New York. And then this is their last uh, printed edition. They they chose to go in a different direction after this, but it was one of those publications that are fun because people from different walks of my life actually saw it and just you, you know called me up and said, "Hey, I saw your poem," which is lovely when poetry can get into the mainstream sure, like that. Sure.
1: And in terms of your poetry, other than Open Cities you mentioned, where can people find it by the way who are interested?
0: We do, uh, a few of them are linked online through my biography at PoetrySalon.com backslash poets. So Jennifer Steiberg, I have about two or three live links. So that's really the most direct. And I'm compiling a chapbook, which is really formalized in the 19th century. It's it's a smaller book of poetry, usually less than 12 to 47 pages approximately. And there's a lot of really interesting fine art presses like Aurelia Press and Ugly Duckling Press. They put those out in the United States.
1: Wonderful. That's right. So that's the book of your poetry that you're working on that you mentioned at the beginning.
0: Yes. that That is, well, I have several. That's the chapbook that that is in the works, and then I have a longer documentary style book of poetry called Being Jay that's still in manuscript form. Being J. Being J, the initial J.
1: So it could be Jennifer.
0: It could be. So it
1: might
0: not be. <laughs> yeah. There's another character named Jay in the book as well. So J-A-Y. J-A-Y, yes. Other places you can find my poetry are the Texas Observer, the Battered Suitcase, uh, the Denver Quarterly. Uh, several times the Texas Observer, so that's always a good bet. Always a good bet.
1: And in terms of the kind of poetry that you're writing, can you fix it for us a bit generically? Uh, is it confessional? Is it lyrical? Is it concrete? What is it, as opposed to what you do for Poetry Summer?
0: Sure. It's certainly free verse. Uh, Sylvia Plath always had a really interesting way of inventing her own rhyme schemes. I'm very inspired by the way she'll start a rhyme in the very center of the sentence and work the rhyme out. I am. Thank you.
1: Because she's a very important poet, uh, I am interviewing her and i keep
0: interrupting her. Third <laughs> so it, it, it's free verse and I, and I deal with subjects such as objectification of women, so gender issues, rhetoric that revolve around both objectification and disability. So the ways in which calling a human being incapable the synonym for disabled, that being ridiculous.
1: (laughs) One of the radio stations here in Los Angeles where we live is part of the Pacifica network and they have a program on disability Mm -hmm. and they refer to people who are not disabled as TAPs. Mm Have you heard this? Temporarily able-bodied people. Oh,
0: that's fantastic.
1: It's a nice way of putting it, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It makes people think about the contingency of capacity.
0: Absolutely.
1: As well as its definition, of course.
0: Contingency and two. I have my contact lenses in today, but when I wear my glasses, I'm using an external technology to support my vision. How is that different than an external technology that would support mobility with wheels? How is it different than your your desk chair with wheels? Or your car or your bicycle for that matter? And the fact that ramps help everyone. They help people pushing strollers, people whose backs hurt or knees hurt, or you know, they can make very beautiful entrances and so
1: provided they're ripped so that people who can't see know that they're about to walk into
0: trap. <laughs> provided they're oh, <laughs> Well, they should be along the side of the building. That's not why into they have bridges. The That's why they have the ridges yeah, on them right.
1: because of activism by the unsighted community.
0: Oh, right, 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 community. right. So you can feel this sense, absolutely. There was a politician in Greece recently who wanted to include into the category of disabled pedophiles and thieves. Now I actually thought that if we exclude everyone else that was the most brilliant use of of the category disabled that I had ever heard. Now of course that's not what he meant but that's what I mean by it. Clearly
1: issues of social justice are quite important to you. That's a traditional Catholic interest somewhat diminished over the last couple of Mm -hmm. papacies but it is a very traditional important Catholic question of social justice, workerism in particular. Uh, and you've mentioned issues of ability, disability, access, you've mentioned gender objectification questions. And does that derive from your practicing Catholicism in some ways or is it something else the issues of feminism for example
0: I would say that it is my own life experiences rubbing up against the practice and tradition of Catholicism with within my family so in my Masters of Fine Arts program, we have a senior thesis where we're all working on each other's final manuscripts. And one of the women in our class created baby dolls. So if you can picture a very small, bald, plastic head of of an infant that's, that's wearing just the white cotton bodice where you might put the onesie on the baby. What's a onesie? Uh, I would say it's that single one piece that buttons on the bottom so it's easy to change the baby's oh, right. diaper. Right, 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 right. right. Okay. Well,
1: what do you call it? Which diaper can be nappy. Yeah, I know what you mean. But like a little jumpsuit almost. Yes, yeah,
0: a little undershirt <laughs> for yeah. babies that's yeah. one
1: piece. That, that wraps up between the legs as well. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And then that's where... Ties in the, the nappy or diaper. Exactly. Yeah. Thank yeah.
0: you so much for that clarification. No, no, I honestly uh, she, didn't... I've not heard the expression before. Interesting. Well, she... Made everyone an iHeart, such as iHeart New York, iHeart Los Angeles, iHeart Poetry, but everyone got one based on their own themes, and within my writing, she put on mine iHeart Dignity. And I really appreciated that because I felt that, oh wow, that is everything that I. Uh, that can boil down a Christian philosophy, that, that can boil down my social justice issues, that really concisely spoke to all that was important to me. Why is it important to concentrate on the moment and be as present as possible and strive toward that, to be most alive, but to have, to give all that I am in that moment.
1: Mm, right. And are there also, uh, when you said it's, it's free verse, do you think there's a politics to form sense, Apart from the content having some politics in certain cases, is the decision to write in free form the decision to have rhyming that doesn't occur in conventional places? A la plat,
0: is that political? As a choice, there is certainly a tradition of the politics of form. If we if if we start with Petrarch and, and Shakespeare coming up with the form of the sonnet there's great constraint culturally within the language and then that's reflected in poetry as well so if i may jump all the way forward to say 1950s american poetry it's really where you see large breaks in in form in which there is a countable syllable set and and a scheme of rhyme and you see the colloquial language being used much more readily and you have black arts movement and Harlem Renaissance movement and, and women's movements that by nature of their form are as activists saying hey my voice is equal in this quote democracy and it should be heard as equal so the working class poet for example should use a slang that if you're in Pittsburgh there's Pittsburghese or the Pittsburgh dialect that would use words like ain't or yins to mean you you all Oh, I and learned that,
1: that term last year, actually. I've got a friend from Pittsburgh. Yes, that's a big one. Okay, yeah. And this is part of authenticity, but it's also resistance to the conventions of creative writing, as it were.
0: True. Because who is to say... Right, it's the question of canonization. Yeah. Who, who is to say the proper language? Well, certainly with English, we, we got our... Mother tongue from across the sea, and and in America you see so, like any language, the ever evolving linguistics and, and new words that, that are formed. But really, to to truly admit, as as Americans, we we are meant. We have always been a melting pot. So how how well are we melting versus having chunks? <laughs> is is this? A,
1: I think when one thinks about U.S. literature. as it emerged over the last particularly couple of hundred years, it's pretty clear there is a real emphasis on a muscular masculinity, and this applies I think as much in poetry as it does in other parts of literature. And of course there are many other figures on Plath, whom we've mentioned a couple of times, who are counters to that, both historically and today. But I wonder if in the five or so minutes left to us, you could tell us a little bit, oh, and you just brought out and Rich, uh, a book by, by her, The Dream of a Common Language. I wonder if you could reflect in the five or six minutes left to us about what it means to be a woman writing poetry now, or what matters to you, or even if you wanted to read us a p- part of a poem by her or by you, that would be great too
0: certainly we are talking about the politics of form and what is it that marks certain voices be it a character in a novel or a speaker in a poem and i will respond to your question i think i will read the glossies my poem and then i will read excerpts of Adrian Rich's The Dream of a Common Language which is one of my all-time favorite books of, of poetry. And
1: this is all in fair use, folks. Nobody's making any money out of reading Adrian Rich's poetry. I hereby assert this. That
0: is correct. And we can also abide by the four lines and under if that makes you feel more comfortable. So this is The Glossies by myself, Jennifer Steyberg, originally uh, printed in Open City, number 30. So thinking about the rhetoric popular about women in visual culture, our American magazines and certainly internationally as well, I'm going to ask you to see the sexy, glossy sexy the sexy, demure, chin down, eyes up sexy, sexy around the edges of pursed lips sexy, sexy that's on every page sexy, sexy leading eyes around the four corners sexy, the neighbor coveting sexy, the sexy porn star whispering unheeded nose sexy, the sexy dinner conversation with sexy, the man yelling whore after the 16-year-old sexy, the sellable, the high school male convicted on nine accounts of rape, of female peers, sexy. The sexy to mores, the more and more.
1: That's wonderful. Um, I loved the use of language in, for for example, unheeded nose, which is quite hard to say. And then at the end, uh, the sexy to mores, the more and more. Use of similar sounding words, mm-hmm. the assonance, the sibilance as well, actually, in these expressions that you have. Very powerful making a very astringent point about the politics of representation.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And thank you for hearing those sounds because to me we are numb by flipping through these pages of objectification and we're so numb to it we may not always connect these ways in which we see those wrongs surfacing in in society, uh, go, going back to rape crisis tr- treatments, when trained to speak to victims, you're also trained how to handle police officers here in the United States, because if it's a prostitute who was sexually abused, the police don't always believe that that is possible. You know, and it's that human dignity, every single person matters, every action. So heating or unheating those nose is very important yes. to me, and perhaps one could parallel ri- uh, a female writing in the world today to the famous Langston Hughes essay uh, about the Negro artist and the racial mountain, the what the Negro artist has to overcome first, in order to then be authentically heard. So we're getting back to the politics of dialect. Not to directly compare, but it comes to mind that there's this notion of mountains to overcome, and and certainly women if you are categorized as pretty or not pretty, you know that that's one of the first questions, right? It, or first appeals. So, striving then to be heard as an intellectual voice. So, so what is what is that? In one of um, Adrian Rich's poems, she talks about it being. Difficult to be a woman to survive in this city, for you're either the one screaming or hearing the screams. That there is this danger to walking around, even in city streets. And she's she's writing from a New York, I, I would say, 60s or 70s uh, New York. She won the Yale Younger Prize around 1950. And this is a, a later later work of hers it's called the the history of consciousness in which it opens and she's talking about the struggle of being a writer so origins and history of consciousness nightlife letters journals bourbon sloshed in the glass poems crucified on the wall dissected their bird wings severed like trophies no one lives in this room without living through some kind of crisis and i love how ungendered that speaker's voice is so in some ways she very subtly just ignores the question and, and speaks on, yes, I'm a woman, yes, I'm a lesbian, and yes, I'm drinking from bourbon. You're drinking bourbon from my, from my glass. Um, and she compares this struggle, this drive to connect, the dream of a common language, with which means so much to me as I work to translate people's lives with the tools of the gift of poetry that I feel I was given. And she compares this dream of a common language, trying to connect, how difficult it is, to a long-term partnership and relationship. And she says, it's simple to wake from sleep with a stranger, dress, go out, drink coffee, enter a life again. It isn't simple to wake from sleep into the neighborhood of one neither strange nor familiar whom we have chosen to trust. Trusting, untrusting, we lowered ourselves into this, led ourselves downward hand over hand as on a rope that quivered over the unsearched.
1: This is the ongoing dialectic and dilemma of solitude, openness, and coupledom, in a sense, being enunciated. And a lot of it in the context, I guess, of security and the constitutive insecurity that women must engage and experience in urban life and not only urban life.
0: Absolutely. Urban and suburban, you're absolutely right, too quiet
1: madness of suburban hell, Mm -hmm. of which I speak in a nasty way because I know that of which I speak, (laughs) 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 rather than claiming to be outside it. (laughs) Anyway, on that note, uh, Jennifer, thank you very, very much for joining us in the pod. When your J-book comes out. Will you please come back and tell us about it and maybe read some of it to us?
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much. And I am so impressed. You would not believe he just sits here and knows so much about the world to give us Pittsburgh history, some art history. It's been an honor. Thank you so much.